as we look to our Lord now in prayer. So, Father, as we're coming before you, we want to come before you as people who, as we've worshipped you on this Lord's Day, are honoring you with our lives. Three-day weekends are special. We catch our breath. Grasping the last elements of a summer before plunging into the normal rhythms of the regular school year, work year, ministry programs, and so on. We thank you, Father, for weekends like this. And when we think of Labor Day, we see in many ways the secular illustration of the spiritual truth where, in essence, Christ labored. His work was complete, and he said on the cross, it is finished. And that was satisfactory in the eyes of God the Father. So, Father, we thank you for his work. And what we want to do now is to examine that work in light of your word and apply what's there to our lives. We want eternal truth to relate to 2017 living. We have to deal with contemporary issues in the here and now. So we're always asking ourselves, how does this relate? Show me how this can be relevant. Teach us, Father, to do that. So, Father, these minutes together are special as we open up your word and reflect upon what it is you've said, how the eternal and the temporal converge. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds shape these wills. We've come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last man standing. Now, Tim Allen, of course, plays Mike Baxter and Nancy Travis, Vanessa Baxter. And many have watched that show and have enjoyed what it offers There's one particular scene that stands out in my mind, though, that relates to today's passage. particular episode where you see Vanessa is very interested in having this mat put outside the entrance door into their house. Simple. Put it out there, and she wanted a one-word statement. Welcome. But her husband, Mike, on the other hand, wanted different wording. He wanted phrased, go away. Now, if you watch the dynamics in that marriage, you're not surprised as to which one said welcome and which one said go away. And as I caught that scene and I processed that scene, what I saw unfolding in front of my eyes in many ways was an illustration of the verses we're looking at today. On one hand, the Bible teaches you and teaches me that we are to provide hospitality, aren't we? John is at the forefront of emphasizing this whole idea of loving one another. But then all of a sudden, you come across verse 10, and if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him a greeting. So now, how are you going to reconcile these two thought processes? That's what we're going to try to do in these minutes together. Because what I want to do with you now is to explore together two significant needs 
The Apostle John addresses in these verses to equip us to be able to meet those needs along the ways of life. And the first comes out of verse 9 through 11. We're going to phrase it like this. Number one, we need to uphold God's truth discerningly. What you and I find in the course of life, that one of the big challenges is to be able to develop within our lives discernment. You and I know that at an early stage when a child sees an animal and that animal is just simply walking on fours, that the natural tendency is perhaps just call them all dogs or call them all cats or whatever. But as that child matures, that child begins to distinguish between cats and hamsters, dogs, etc., In other words, maturity involves the ability to make greater and greater distinctions over the course of life. The early church needed to be able to make distinctions because the ability to make distinctions is part of the growing up process of becoming mature. To be able to determine what's right and what's wrong, to be able to distinguish what's true and what's false. It was a highly pluralistic culture. It was a smorgasbord of spiritualities. And all of a sudden, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ enter into the hearts, the minds, and the souls of people. And how do you maintain exclusive truth without becoming reclusive people? How do we maintain exclusive truth without becoming reclusive people? The church was not to be isolationists, removing the light and the salt from society. They were to be engaged with the culture, not removed from the culture. But now the question is, how do you maintain balance in a fallen world like the one we are in and offer the singular Jesus in a pluralistic age? Notice how verse 9 begins. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Notice very carefully that phrase, everyone who goes on ahead. Now, if you had a new international version in front of you, it would be phrased, one who runs ahead, wouldn't it? And if you had a new American standard in front of you, somebody who goes too far. It's like that third base coach. And one of the slowest runners in MLB is making his way toward third base. And the third base coach realizes that there's a throw coming in from the outfield, puts his arms up like this. In other words, stop. But the runner disregards the sign of the third base coach and continues on towards home plate only to get thrown out at the plate. We've got to understand what we're dealing with here. C.S. Lewis once wrote, we all want progress. But if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the one who turns back the soonest is the most progressive. 
What fascinates me is that those that felt as though they needed to add to what God's word said as if the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ were not sufficient were viewed in that time period as progressives. Progressing beyond the word of God. Now what John is telling these disciples in this pluralistic culture that he finds himself positioned in as the last, the remaining of the twelve apostles, one who is burdened to uphold the truth of the gospel, is to equip people to be able to make such distinctions, to be able to bring discernment into life. And so after having said in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. He now begins verse 9 with everyone who goes on ahead, the progressive, so to speak. But now notice the caveat. And does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Abide is one of his favorite words. We've seen it again and again and again carries with it the idea of being continuously resident in, being one who is continually positioned in, one who remains, one who resides in Jesus. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In the teaching of Christ carries with it not only what Christ taught, but also what the sum total of the scriptures teach about Christ. And the warning is such, and the warning is such, that the Apostle John alerted us to these people back in 1 John chapter 2. We have noted it time and again. Because in verse 19, he had said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. They might look the part. They might sound like they've got the part down cold. Yet they do not belong to Jesus. They are those who go on ahead, disregard the third base coach, so to speak, do not abide in the teaching of Christ. And now his statement regarding to such people is, they do not have God. At the end of the Battle of Britain, British Vice Marshal Alexander Adams was driving to a meeting at his headquarters, 1940. Came upon a sign, road closed. Unexploded bomb. Adams called over the officer on duty, hoping he might be able to suggest an alternative route or route or however we say it. Sorry, sir, he said. You can't go through, said the officer as he approached the car. The bomb's likely to go off at any minute, but then he caught sight of Adams' uniform. I'm very sorry, sir. I didn't know you were a commander. It's quite all right for you to go through. Now, there is grace in the warnings. When God says hot, there is love behind the word hot. 
when he says go no further, it's not because he wants to punish us. He says go no further, it's because he loves us. And so now the Apostle John, who understands the value and the significance of wedding together love and truth, truth and love, pulls this thought together for you and me. One cannot have truth without love, nor can one truly love without truth. And so five times in the opening verses, he offers you and offers me a thorough understanding of how these two are to be operative. Everyone who goes on ahead disregards the third base coach, disregards the signage regarding the bond, does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. But now he flips it, doesn't he? And you're still on verse 9. And there's the Apostle John, and once again, he utilizes the word abide. It's one of his favorite words, isn't it? And all, throughout the course of his writings, you go into the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John, and again and again, Jesus talks about abiding, residing. In other words, that's where your spiritual zip code is. In Jesus. In Jesus' words. Notice the little word I-N. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So you and I are to continuously reside in, make that our permanent zip code for eternity that we are in Christ because that is how we are distinguished in a culture of gray that cannot make a matter of discernment a priority. Billy Graham tells the story. We've heard it off and on through the years as he shared it in various settings of the time in which a group of believers in the former Soviet Union were forced to gather in secrecy in a house basement to avoid detection by authorities. Christian worship then and there were, it was illegal. But he tells us that during a service, the door burst open, two soldiers with guns walked in and yelled, leave now and you'll go free. If you choose to stay and worship Jesus Christ, you'll be shot. A few left. He tells us most stayed. And then the soldiers threw down their weapons and said to the gathered church, We are Christians also. Yet we cannot worship with a group who are not genuine followers of Jesus. In a culture of artificiality, people are looking for authenticity. The Christian home is built upon the authenticity of the truth of God's word, where we are the laboratory for the culture as to how truth and love are wedded together and cannot ever be separated. And so now we have an opportunity, if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to apply these words and offer that sense of the genuineness of the Christian experience to be offered to people that are desperately looking for something more than the artificial in life. 
they're looking for the authenticity that they don't know at this point is found in Christ, but we bring to them via Christ. And now he adds, whoever abides, remains, puts their zip code in. For the second time, the little word I-N appears. This is your sphere of operation in the teaching of Christ. Whoever abides in the teaching here has both the Father and the Son. I want you to notice how Trinitarian, once again, this is. Because the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring the Apostle John to talk about the first and second members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. This is crucial. Because as a former professor of mine, Dr. David Wells puts it, while the Father and the Son must be personally distinguished from one another, they cannot be disengaged because they each fully share the same divine nature. Do we understand that? Now we live in a pluralistic society And what we are offering them is a singular Jesus. One of the clearer issues today is the assumption that all monotheistic religions worship the same God by different names. One writer puts it, this is an ecumenical impulse that reaches to embrace the world's religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and turned it into one major, one major family. But the writer goes on to say, when the Greek and Roman cultures met, each was worshiping a pantheon of gods and goddesses. In an ecumenical spirit to embrace the other, the pantheons were simply equated. You Greeks call him Zeus. We Romans call him Jupiter, but it's all the same. However, When the Apostle Paul encountered the Greco-Roman pantheon, he taught of the exclusive Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. We are Trinitarian in our monotheism. There is one God. There are three persons within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you see. What we have to do in this pluralistic culture is to argue for the Trinitarian God who offered the second member of the Trinity as the exclusive means of approaching God through Christ's finished work without adding to or subtracting from. Now you begin to think this through and you realize the significance of what we're dealing with at this point. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This is highly Trinitarian here. But now the rub. What do you do with that mat at the entrance? Does it say, welcome? Or does it say, go away? This is the Mike Vanessa tension now that we see as we're coming into the next verse here. Because in verse 10, it goes on to read, if anyone comes to you, notice that it does not read, if you go to them. If anyone comes to you, 
and does not bring this teaching. Notice how specific he is. Now, a twofold prohibition. Number one, do not receive him into your house. Number two, or give him any greeting. The Greek word for greeting here is the word we get rejoice from. In other words, to find joy in this relationship. How then are we going to understand this particular verse? And how does it relate to the time periods in which you and I live? What you and I have got to understand is that John is dealing with the early stages of the growth of the Christian church. People met in house gatherings. They had house churches. When you invite someone into your house, you're inviting someone into your church, you see. Facilities such as this were not beginning to be established until the second century as the growth of Christianity required more and more and more space for people to gather together then God in his grace provided for the resources necessary to begin to build structures for churches to meet in. But what we've got to understand at this point is the Apostle John pens his thoughts. He is writing to people who worshiped in houses. And when you invited someone into your house, you invited someone into your church and it was tied together. Now, in the time period in which he wrote, which was known as the Pax Romana, where there was peace throughout the Roman Empire, it was a time in which the Roman Empire had a well-constructed road system, which allowed for a proliferation of people to teach what they wanted to teach, going near and far. Missionaries had greater opportunities to communicate the truth for such a time as this. The opportunities were abundant, you see, for in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Once the Roman Empire had established a situation where there could be the rampant growth of Christianity via teachers, highly mobile, then the counterfeiter steps in. You might recall that last week we noted that we were to watch out for the one who is, in verse 7, the deceiver, and number 2, the Antichrist. And so just as Jesus had said to his disciples, as the Father sent me, so send I you, then the counterfeiter, the evil one, then offers an alternative who begin to make their way, their rounds, in order to offer an alternative to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. The culture has got to understand that the Christian is able to make distinctions and offer authenticity in a culture of artificiality. And so we bring these timeless truths together in a timely way, and we talk about Jesus Christ just as the Apostle John challenged his readership to do, because in verse 7 of this book, many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And he came in the flesh to die for our sins. So what do you do with that person then who still shows up at your door? Understanding that this is our house church. 
Stories told of a committed sports fan named Tom who looked forward every Saturday afternoon, you see, to watch his college football games. He became frustrated because there was this particular religious group cult that kept knocking on his door at the time in which teams were about to kick off. So he asked his senior pastor how to handle this problem. Senior pastor said, well, the cult you're thinking about in particular, they don't believe in patriotism. Don't salute the flag. So Tom, he was armed and ready, and so for the next Saturday morning, he got the family together, and sure enough, early afternoon, there's that knock on the door, and so Tom invites two ladies into his house, displays a 10-by-12-foot flag, has the children sing the national anthem, and then looks at the two ladies and says, you may, not, you may not say anything at all until I see you pledge allegiance to the flag and sing along with the star-spangled banner. Ladies are stunned into silence. Finally, one of them says, Mister, I've never been asked to make this kind of commitment or do anything like this in my 30 years of selling Avon products. can hear her singing, I am the boss. <laughs> Are we able to make distinctions? Do we understand how timeless truths relate in timely ways? What do we do with this? What John was talking about that point was that when you invite someone into your house, you were inviting someone into that church because of the house church phenomenon. But then as you move into the second century, there began to be a greater and greater degree of distinctiveness being made. What he is challenging people to do then is to be able to maintain a sense of discernment in a culture which lacks the ability to make distinctions. Now, comparable to that would be then to say, well, I'm going to simply allow that kind of person to come and speak during our second or third Christian education hours. That's the sort of thing that the Apostle John is saying, no, you cannot do. Those people simply violate verse 9. They run ahead and do not abide in the teaching of Christ. They do not have God. Everyone who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So if anyone comes to you and simply wants to be able to offer their alternative to the gospel during our Christian education ministries, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, or so on, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, you do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, the word greeting here carries with the idea of entering into a joyous relationship with. Why? Verse 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And what fascinates me about this, when you and I look at that phrase, takes part, the word takes part come from a Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. In other words, what he's saying here is if you do that, if you allow for that, if a church is willing to compromise itself at that point and offer alternative teachings, then they are experiencing koinonia with those who are of darkness when you claim to be light, those who embrace falsehood when you claim to be peoples of truth. And you can't have it both ways, you see. 
So the Apostle John is asserting that Christ alone is the truth in a religiously diverse culture. There's no rivals. There's to be no compromise. The challenge is how to maintain the sense of being exclusive without becoming reclusive. Because we're called to be salt and light in this world, not remove the salt and the light from this world. This is how you do it, and he's developing it for us here, and it's brilliant. Now, once you've worked that through, we need to uphold God's truth discerningly. Then you quickly tie it all together with this second need that we need, furthermore, to uphold God's truth relationally. And here it comes. And though I have much to write to you, he writes, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Or to put it another way, I, I'd prefer not to use my electronic device. You see. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. Face to face. This is where you're able to discern the tone of the voice. This is where you're able to discern the expression on the face. What fascinates me is that the phrase face-to-face literally means mouth-to-mouth. Don't know quite what to say about that. Except for the fact that maybe he's talking about spiritual resuscitation. I don't know. But in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describing his relationship with Yahweh God. God speaking, with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And so now what John is offering is this combination of truth and love to such a degree that we begin to understand the significance of the fact that one cannot, one cannot have truth without love, nor can one truly love without truth. And when you pull all that together, he says, it's so that our joy may be complete, and you say, Gary, that's just how this second epistle began in verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, There's the concept of joy. And now he ends as he began here in verse 12, so that our joy may be complete. And then tags it. The children of your elect sister greet you. Greet you. And now you take a line from that word greet in verse 13, and you draw it back to verse 11. And now you've got the Mike Vanessa tension because in verse 11, in essence, he's saying, go away. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. But here in verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you, and that's the welcome mat. You pull all this together then, and you and I are challenged to be exclusive about Christ without being reclusive within this world And Jesus Christ entered into this world, not remaining reclusive within the heavens, 
but came into this world to die for our sins while maintaining his exclusive claims to be the second member of the Trinity and dying in our place for our sins, the singular and only means of salvation. We're talking about Trinitarian Christianity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. Yes, monotheistic, but what distinguishes Christianity is the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, the two natures in one person, 100% God, 100% bad, so that Jesus Christ was perfectly designed to be the way, the truth, the life, and the only means of being able for us to enter into heaven because what he offered on the cross was complete, final, and acceptable in the eyes of the Father. The welcome mat issue. The next time you're dealing with people and you're struggling with, are they Christian or are they not? Maintain the truths of Christianity in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. Maintain the sense of the exclusiveness of Christ without becoming reclusive as a believer in this fallen world. And God will use you powerfully to make a difference for his glory. Let's stand together. On this Labor Day weekend, Father, and the comings and goings of people and their traveling, we realize that in that first century, the Apostle John saw a lot of comings and goings unique to history. The early stages of rapid mobility were both truth and error would be communicated in various settings. People needed to be prepared then, and people need to be prepared now. So help us to maintain the healthy tensions that Scripture provides. Help us to understand what that house church phenomena represented and how it gets transferred principally into a living 2017 life in a way that honors you. May the result be, Father, that you're honored. People are coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we're making an impact for your glory. We thank you now. The labor of this weekend points to the labor of the one who said it is finished. The work was completed. He died for our sins. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.